You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day again to the dads in the room. We're so glad you've joined us today. So today we're going to wrap up a three-part series we've been doing uh, called Difference Maker. We're talking about how it is that we can make a difference in this world. Now, of course, there are a lot of uh, great ways that we can be difference makers in this world. And one of them we obviously are celebrating today. That is the role that fathers play in families and in this world. There's a lot of studies uh, that show the tremendous positive impact that fathers have, not only in the home, but in communities at large. One of the amazing studies that I've seen in, in several different forms is how just the presence of a dad in the home, how in a community that impacts uh, just the stability and even the crime rate of that community. But the impacts of parenting, both mothers and fathers, are are pretty obvious to it. It's it's one of God's tremendous difference-making assignments. But of course, there are others. There are a lot of important causes in this world that we can get behind, give our time and our money to. Uh, causes that address some of the many problems in this world, like poverty or injustice. Or you could dedicate your life to building products or developing services that really benefit the lives of many people. Or you could spend your life in education, training up and teaching the next generation, preparing the future that way in education. Or you could go into the public sector, public service, either on the protection side, protecting our communities, or in providing services to our communities. I noticed, I forget which day it was, but this last day I I heard a news report that one of the days was National, I think it was National Trash Collectors Day. When I heard that, I thought, really? National Trash Collectors Day? And then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, I'm really grateful for trash collectors. So go National Trash Collecting Day. Because if you've ever been to any parts of the world where they don't have trash collectors, boy, it makes a difference in the community and the environment. So there's all kinds of ways that we can make a difference in this world. And these and many other ways are good and noble things that we can do with our lives. But the question I want to ask in this final message in this three-part series is, are any of these great efforts enough? Are they enough for us? They're good, but is it enough? Is it enough for us to raise our children? and do important work. I suggest that none of these are enough. They're good. They're very good. But they're just not enough. The reason I know this is because those who do these and do them well are never satisfied. They still have the desire to do more. Those who have raised their kids and are now helping with their grandkids, they still have a sense that there's as important, as good as that is, there's still more to be done. Those who have succeeded in business are rarely satisfied. Those who have worked in the public sector almost never leave it feeling like, you know what, it's, it's running now, it's humming, everything is great. No, there's more to be done. So the question then, the secondary question is, did God give us a desire to make a difference in this world that is bigger than our everyday capacity? And I would say no. I think the reason that we are constantly trying to do more and never satisfied is because there is one particular assignment, difference-making assignment that God has given us that fits with the desire to make an impact in this world. It's the assignment we've been talking about, the assignment of helping others discover who Jesus Christ is, the one who can make the biggest impact in this world. In Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament, 
Paul and Barnabas were traveling the Mediterranean basin, and they were telling people about this good news. They were on this mission. And they encountered opposition in the city of Antioch, and they were asked by the Jewish leaders in this city, why are you doing this? And this was their answer. It's found in Acts chapter 13, verse 47. Paul says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes, said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, the Jewish leaders who Paul was talking to knew exactly what Paul was pointing to. He, he knew, they knew that Paul was quoting something from the Old Testament. And they all were well aware of this verse. It's found in Isaiah 49.6. This is what Paul was quoting. Here's what it says. God says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So at this time, when this verse had been written in Isaiah, when God had spoken this to the prophet Isaiah, the Jewish people had been scattered throughout the world. They had been conquered first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And there were remnants of them still living in Palestine, but for the most part, they had been exiled to these different locations. And so in the current moment of history, their top goal as the Jewish people was to reconstitute the nation, regather and pull a nation together from all of these remnants. They wanted to rebuild their nation. And at this moment, God says to the prophet Isaiah, building a nation is too small. It's too small of a goal for you. Now, that's an amazing statement because out of all the things you do with your life and I do with my life, we're probably not going to build a nation. Building a nation is a big thing to do. It's what we honor those who sacrifice so much to build our nation. Individuals like George Washington, we still honor him 250 years later. No one would dare tell Washington that his sacrifice was too small a thing. Oh, it was a big thing. But God says here that even building a nation, even if you get in on the ground floor of a nation, which is a pretty rare opportunity, that is still too small of a thing for us to accomplish. God has something bigger in mind. He intends for us to bring salvation, his salvation, to the ends of the world. So given the size of that task, bigger than nation building, should we all quit our jobs Spend all of our waking hours telling people about the good news of the forgiveness and the salvation that's offered through Jesus Christ. So we just quit our jobs and do that full time. No, that's not what God is saying here. Notice the important statement he makes, I will also make you a light. The word also is key there. What they were doing was fine. It's good to build a nation, but it just wasn't enough. We are to also bring God's salvation in addition to every other task that we have to do during the flow of our life. So if you're a parent, that's not a small task. Especially if your children are young, that is a consuming, tiring, everyday kind of task. But in the middle of parenting, you also are called to be a part of being a light to the world that God has placed you in. If you're an employee, that's going to take up most of your days, most of your week. But also, in addition to that, you are to be a light where God has placed you. 
If you own a business, that's going to consume a great deal of your time. But also, this needs to be a part of what you're doing as well. It's not enough for us to live inside the walls of our everyday working world. It's just too small a thing. We must be a part of bringing God's salvation to the world. So the question we've been asking the series is, how can we add that big assignment to our everyday life? We've been looking at three things. The first we looked at is our story. We can tell other people our story. And God uses that to make a tremendous difference in this world and bring light where there is darkness. Last week we talked about just simply taking the initiative with people, striking up conversations. And today we conclude with kind of the foundation idea, it's going to take sacrifice to tell your story and to take the initiative. It's going to require sacrifice on our part. And that's because after you do your job and care for your kids and do the hundreds of tasks that it takes to maintain a home and a car and a life, how much time is left over for you? Not much. And with the little bit of you time that you have left, you will not naturally want to put in the effort to being a light in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in this community. Not because you don't want to, but because you're tired, because you've already sacrificed for these other things that are good and important. But it's that extra effort that will determine whether you are really a difference maker in this world or not. So this morning, I want to drill down on this idea of sacrifice. I want to talk about two kinds of everyday sacrifices that we need to make in order to be this kind of difference maker, in order to be a light, God's light, wherever he has placed us. And I'm going to use two images to describe this. The first is the image of a seed that you plant in the ground. The second is the image of an altar. An altar in ancient times was the place where you worshiped God, the place where you offered your sacrifices to God. So we're going to use these two images. First, the seed sacrifice. The seed sacrifice points to the fact that we have to get out of our shell. If we're going to be a difference maker, we've got to break the shell of the seed casing that usually covers our lives. Now, the good news about Jesus is not some kind of sales pitch about Jesus that we make, that we're trying to get people to, you know, buy or something like that. The gospel, which that means good news, the good news about Jesus is more like a seed, that when it's planted in a life and it germinates and it takes root, it becomes the most powerful seed of change the world has ever known, one life at a time. So how does the seed of the good news about Jesus go from us to somebody else? It requires sacrifice. Jesus says it actually requires a kind of death. Here's what he says in John 12, 24. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. Basic botany. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. He's using the image from agriculture to talk about how the gospel is like a seed and what it takes for that to move beyond us to other people. You see, there are two things that you can do with a seed. You can eat it. You, know, you can crush it in flour and make bread out of it. Or you can take that seed and plant it in the dirt. And it's the same with the seed of the good news of Jesus. 
You can eat it. You, you can let its truth nourish your life, bring life to you. That happens when you accept the seed. You actually ingest the seed personally. You agree with it. You believe in it. You decide to follow Jesus Christ. And it changes you. It nourishes you. But the other thing is you can plant that seed in the life of somebody else. Now, every farmer does both with their seed. Some of the seed, some of the fruit that's grown from the seed are eaten. It becomes food that nourishes him and others. But some of the seeds are put back in the ground and planted. And in the same way, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called also to do both. But there's a price that comes with planting the seed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Just like a seed, Jesus says, we have to die. Now, the death is not a physical death. It's a death to our own agendas, our own comfort. What's amazing about a seed is that it, it has a, a DNA code in it that allows a lot to grow from that seed. The size of the seed kind of gives the impression that it's not that important, but inside that seed, there is truth, there is code, there are ideas that can grow into a tremendous tree that can feed many, many people. And that's the same with the gospel. But the seed, in order for that genetic code to get out, the shell of the seed has to crack. It has to die. The seeds contain a hard shell for protection. The shell has to be broken in order for it to grow. It's the same with us. We all construct a bit of a shell around us to protect us. And the purpose of our shell is comfort. The root of the word comfort is fort. That's the root of the word comfort. And it kind of describes what comfort demands. It, it demands some walls, some, some protection. The walls of our fort may be financial walls. They may be um, just routines. And comfort's not bad. At times, we really do need to crawl into our comfort fort. We need the protection of the shell. But if our lives are going to have an eternal impact, we cannot stay inside our shells. The germination of life requires the shell of the seed to break. I don't know if you know this, but the first part of a seed that breaks out of the shell is called the radical. This is what botanists refer to as the radical. It's the first part of the seed that breaks out, and it forms the first root. That's an interesting name for the, the seed to break out. The word radical means to depart from the usual, to do something different. And that's very similar to what it takes for the good news of Jesus to break out of our life and begin to affect anyone else's life. We have to leave the confines of our comfort for it. So God will challenge us to get out of our comfort zones and plant the good news of the gospel. This requires us to sometimes be uncomfortable. For me, the radical thing that I plan to do this summer is find a cycling club to ride with. Now, that doesn't sound very radical, but it's the radical thing I plan to do. It's the way I'm going to depart from the usual this summer to try to be a difference maker in this community. Now, I honestly, I would much prefer to ride my bike by myself listening to my music. That's my preference. And I will do some of that. I'm not going to abandon that. I'm still going to do some of that. But what I've noticed about myself is I'm busy, and being a pastor 
most of the people I work with are followers of Christ already. So my life is encapsulated. It, it's got a shell around it where I don't tend to have a lot of opportunities to have conversations with people who are not followers of Christ. So I've got to break out of my shell. I've got to break out of my routines. I've got to go away from the usual. And this is the one way. It's going to be uncomfortable for me. But this is going to be one of the ways that I plan to do that this summer. My daily routines have become kind of like the shell of my seed. I need to put effort into getting out of my shell. In the book of Acts, in another chapter that is after the one that we read in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul does something radical also of this nature. He goes to a philosophy meeting in the city of Athens, kind of the center of philosophical thought at the time. Now, why would Paul show up at a philosophical meeting? Well, he tells us in Acts 17, he's actually explaining to these individuals that he's meeting with why he's there. This is what he says in verse 26 through 27. It says, From one man, God, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. When I first read this, kind of zipped over it years ago, and then I realized, what? What? This is a, the exact times? This is amazing. What Paul is saying is, I'm here in Athens. The question is why? Why is Paul in Athens? Well, if you read around the story, you'll discover that he is in Athens because he's waiting for some friends to arrive from another destination, then they're going to travel to another place. So Athens is kind of a, a stopover in their travel plans. That's the main reason Paul is in Athens. But Paul also knows that his reason for being in Athens is not the only reason he's in Athens. Part of the reason he's in Athens is because God has put him there to be a light. So, for example, let's update it to our week. Say this past week you find yourself standing in line at a store, or you find yourself sitting on a bench at a park. The question is why? Why are you in that line? Why are you at that park? Well, the surface reason is because you decide to go to that store for groceries or for something else. Or you decide to go to that park so that your kids could play. That's the main reason that you're aware of that you're there. And everyone standing around you is there for the same reason. The person in line in front of you, behind you, they're in that line because they want to get groceries too. People sitting around you in the park, they're in that park because they want to play in that park too. But in a way that none of us can fully understand, it is God who set this all up. What he says, Paul, is that God determined the time set for us in the, not the approximate places, the exact places. Now, he's the one who takes our free choices and weaves them into the exact when and where of our days. Now, I wish that the verses went on to explain, how does God do that? Because I don't know. I don't know how you take my free decision and I end up at a place and God says, yep, that's exactly where I want you to be. I don't, I don't, my mind can't comprehend how that works together. But that's what Paul is saying. I think he doesn't explain it to us because we wouldn't understand. What he tells us is a more important question. Why does God do this? The reason why is so that people who are far from him would find him and reach out to him. That's God's agenda. 
The truth is, God's not far from anyone. He's right there. But people have to decide to turn around to see him. He's invisible. They can't see him. So how does he show up in a light? He puts you or me next to them. God will get us into the position where we are close by. What God will not do, though, it's amazing that he's gotten this into position, but what he won't do is he won't open our mouth for us. So you won't suddenly start saying things and think, who's doing this? No, God's not going to take over to that level. He's not going to force you to move the next 10 feet to go up and talk to somebody. You're not going to suddenly find yourself moving and you can't control that. No, he's not going to do that. He still gives us the freedom to decide whether we're going to, he just gets us in position. He gives us the freedom to decide whether we're going to say anything. So if you find yourself in the same place at the same time with someone and you sense a nudge on the inside to just strike up a conversation to talk, it's most likely because God has just set up a meeting with someone that he's been pursuing for some time now. And now he's prompting us to cover the last 10 feet and see what happens. But what happens? Often for me, what happens is the fear of the unknown rises in my heart and I crawl back to the protection of my shell. But as Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat is planted into the soil and dies, it remains alone. You know, the thing about seeds is they can survive. Some of them can survive a long time. There's some seeds that can survive in the shell, intact with the genetic code in place for 100 years. That's a long time. It's kind of the same with us. You know, we've got a lifespan maybe a hundred years, that would be amazing. That would be rare. But our seed is intact for a certain period of time. And what that means is we have a limited time to plant our lives. And if we're going to love seed life with its walls of comfort, we're going to miss out on what God can let us become, the impact that we can have, the difference we can make in this world. The power of the seed comes not in the eating, not in the nourishing, not in the benefit to us. The power, the real power of the seed comes in the planting in the lives of other people. So that's the first image, the seed sacrifice. The second image is the altar, the altar sacrifice. This requires us to get past their response, to get past whether people approve of what we're sharing or what our life is about or don't, whether they accept Jesus or not. See, another of the top reasons we don't get out of our shells and tell people about Jesus is we just don't know how people are going to respond. And we have good reason to think that they will not respond favorably. The reason we think this is rational. I mean, the first piece of data is the fact that the majority of people do not accept Jesus. That's always been true. The reasons range from a simple, I'm busy, I'm not interested, I have no time for this, to I don't really agree with it, to I, I strongly disagree with this. As I said, it's always been this way. Then another piece of data is this. Of the minority of people who decide to follow Jesus, it's usually a pretty long process that they go through before they decide to personally accept the seed of the good news of Jesus in their life. I heard of a study recently it said that the average person who decides to attend church has been invited eight times before they decide to attend. 
What that means is they've said no seven times before they said yes. Now, that's just an average. What was interesting about what I read is that in the research they did, the numbers seem about the same with people who decide to accept Jesus personally as their own Savior and Lord. The average number of times a person hears the gospel, the good news explained, before they decide to follow Jesus is also eight. Now, what that doesn't mean is that if someone says, no, I'm not interested in that, you say, okay, let me tell it to you again. <laughs> How much time you got? Because I got to do this seven more times. No, it's not a pressure tactic. This, is, this just talks about the idea that this is a big decision. You wouldn't want people to say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Because then you'd say, well, wait, do you understand <laughs> that this is going to change your life? Do you understand what you're signing up for, what you're agreeing to, you, that you're really going to follow him and he's going to change your life? It just takes time for people to think about this and to understand it and decide. Now, you may be in this room and you may be in that situation. You may be counting up right now, wait, how many times was I invited before I decided to come? You may be sorting and trying to figure out, what do I think about all this? Do I agree with this or not? And that's great. One of, the th one of our values is to give people space to investigate because we are thinking people we we need time to sort this is not about pressure this is about information and decision so if you're here and someone has shared the good news with you a few times what it sounds like to me is you've got some friends that really care about you they're willing to take this kind of risk and more importantly it i would suspect God is probably trying to get your attention. That's an amazing thing. To think that God put you in a neighborhood next to someone so that he could get your attention or got you in a park, your kids playing, their kids playing, so you could talk. That's an amazing thing to think that God would do that. That means that he loves you, just like your friends do. Now, what's interesting, we don't need to hear the good news about Jesus eight times from one person. Usually we need to hear it eight times from eight people. Why? The truth is the truth. I mean, the, the words that explain the gospel, they don't change. They're the same. But each person has their own way of explaining it. You, know, you ask someone to explain any idea. Some people explain it this way. Some people explain it that way. They're not changing the content. They're just explaining it differently. And every one of us has our own story about how the good news of Jesus has changed us. And often what is true of all of us is we need to hear from a different voice in order to more fully understand. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people or had people come up to me and say, oh, I just heard this person say this on the radio or I read this in the, this book and it really is changing my life. And I'll be, what? What's this new truth? And they'll share me this truth and I'll think, I've said that a bunch of times. <laughs> but to them, it's a brand new idea. If you're a parent, you know this. You, know, you tell your kids all kinds of stuff, and then they come home, and someone told them that. It's like, I just learned this. It's like, why? That's just the way we are. We need to hear it from a different voice sometimes for it to click. So if you step out of your shell, talk about Jesus, there's a good chance the person you're talking to will not accept Jesus, at least not then. So the question then is, why take 
all the risk and sacrifice your time and do something that will most likely not work. I would say because it is the single most profitable thing that you can do with your time. And I use the word profit intentionally. Profit is the difference between what you spend and what you earn. You know, revenue minus expenses equals profit. Profit is basically what you have to show for your time, for your effort. And stepping out of your shell and trying to help someone understand the good news isn't financially profitable. I'm not speaking of that kind of profit. I'm speaking of life profitable. It is eternally profitable in this life and in the life to come. And the reason is because, let's just say a thousand years from now in heaven, I suspect the money that you've made on earth will be a distant memory, if you can remember it at all. But what you will remember is the people that you have invested in and the God that you invested for. You see, the only two investments that go into eternity that we can make now are what we invest in people and what we do for God. So in heaven, I think part of the joy will be seeing all of the connections between the sacrifices that you've made and the people you've impacted and are in heaven now because, in part, because of your efforts. Some you will know before you go, and some you will find out when you get there. But what about all the people that you sacrificed for, and they ended up saying no to God? Where's the joy in that? The eternal profit that we experience as joy, and that, by the way, that's how you experience eternal profit, as joy, now and forever. It has two revenue streams. As I said, the people who are changed by our sacrifices and the God who has told us to make the sacrifices. Those are the two revenue streams. The Apostle Paul, again, points to both revenue streams of joy that will result from his sacrifices in the city of Philippi. Here's what he says in Philippians. That's why it's called Philippians. It's about the church in Philippi, a letter to them. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Paul says, and then, he's talking about all of his investments and all his sacrifice for them, and he says, and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. What is he talking about? First of all, he's talking about the day of Christ. This is the day when, when all the books are opened and the bottom line is drawn and we get to see what we made our investments in, and what the profit really is, what we have to show for our lives. And Paul says, on that day, my hope is that there will, I'll be able to boast on that day. Now, the Greek word is not bragging. It's to be content that's used here. What he's saying is, on that day, I'm going to be so glad that I sacrificed for you Philippians because I didn't want to have to run or labor in vain for you. Paul's desire is that these people that he poured his life into would be worth the effort. The risk is that they would reject Jesus, and it would mean that his sacrifice for them was in vain. The word in vain means to drain out. It's, it's the image of pouring water into a leaky container. If you've ever done that, you pour water in, and you, oh, there's holes in this bucket. You poured out your water in vain. That's the, the image behind that word. And when we sacrifice, we all want to have something to show for our effort. We all want to pour it into a bucket 
where we look over and we can say, oh, I've got something to show for my life. I've got something to show for my effort. The problem is, when you pour your life into people, people are the leakiest container you can pour your life into. Because people do what people want to do. You, as a parent, can pour 20 years into your child, and they will do something that will break your heart. And you'll look over the edge of that bucket and say, in grief and sadness, what, what was all that pouring for? It's the same when you share the good news of Jesus with other people. You can pour into somebody and take the risk and sacrifice, and they decide, yeah, never mind. I don't want to do anything with that. So why keep sacrificing your time and your words and your effort on people? If it's because of their response, you'll eventually crawl back into your shell and stop sacrificing. There has to be a deeper reason for sacrificing for people, or you'll decide that it's just not worth it to be a difference maker for Jesus. And that's what Paul talks about in the second part of this verse. He says, but, and that's a very important but, but even if, what he's saying is, even if all my effort was in vain, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. What's he talking about? What does he mean? What's a drink offering? God had instructed Israel in the ancient times to offer their offerings and sacrifices to him on an altar. And a part of every moment that they did that, they were instructed to pour water or wine over their sacrifices and watch the liquid run out of the ground. This was called a drink offering. What was the reason for that? What was the point? The point was to remind them that their life is basically a pouring out. All of our life is a pouring out. We have a certain amount of life, days, time, effort, gifts, resources. And every day we pour some out. Today we've we got a day we're pouring out somewhere. But these people had been poured out on because God had told Paul, I want you to go to Philippi and I want you to pour your life out on that altar. You see, if you decide to pour it out in service to God, then you have a reason to rejoice, even if there's nothing to show for it. I mean, what happens when water is poured out? It runs into the ground and it's lost. All that sacrifice, all that service, gone, lost. But it's not lost if you poured it out on the altar of God. If you pour into the bucket of how their faith is growing or not, then it can feel like a waste. Now, to be clear, pouring your life into a bucket isn't wrong. It's, it's appropriate to want your sacrifice to matter. But even if it doesn't, you still have a reason to be glad and rejoice. Even if you go to your grave and your children break your heart on your deathbed. The question was, did you honor God and pour your life out on the altar of parenting that he called you to? Yes. Then as sad as you may be on your deathbed, you have reason to be glad and rejoice for all of eternity because you poured your life out on an altar. If you pour your life out and share the good news of Jesus with people and you don't have much to show, show for it, that's sad. But if you poured it out because God said, this is what I want you to do, then you have a reason to be glad and rejoice. 
Again, the eternal profit that we experience as joy has two revenue streams. The people who are changed by our sacrifices and the God who told us to make those sacrifices. We need both revenue streams. If it's just the bucket, there's not going to be enough joy. If it's the bucket over the altar, then you have reason to be glad and rejoice. So Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted into the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the dads in this room who have poured out their lives in sacrifice and service for us, for their children. Father, I pray that there would be something profitable to show out of that. But even if right now there isn't, God, I pray that you would help them sense the joy of pouring out their lives on the altar of sacrifice and service to you. And Father, as we look out at our community, God, help us to get out of our shells, do the radical thing for us this summer, break out of our patterns so that we might plant the seed of the good news in someone else's life. And then regardless of how they respond to us or to you, God, I pray you'd help us to find joy in the pouring out of our lives in what you've called us to. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.